I hope you'll forgive me if I begin on a personal note. I've been reading Robert St. John's biography of you. I don't know whether you fully approve of that biography, but he tells us, among many other things, that some of your friends, English and I suppose Israeli friends, believe that your deep interest in cricket had some important part in forming your character and shaping your mind. And I'm quoting from St. John in that. Is there anything to that at all? Uh, well, I only approve of those parts of the uh, book by St. John, which are unreservedly affirmative. Uh, now, on that issue, uh, I don't believe, I d he doesn't draw much connection, and I don't believe there is any. No, there isn't. I should really like to pursue that, though, at, a, mm. at another level. Your career before the foundation of the Israeli state was decidedly English. You were raised in England with occasional visits to the continent and, I believe, back to South Africa from whence your family had come. No, I've never been to South Africa at all except for the first seven months of my life. <clears throat> After seven months, I decided to leave. I never went back, and during those seven months, uh, my social contacts were very limited. At any rate, there were those who advised you to enter into a parliamentary career in England, others who advised you to pursue your brilliant scholarly career and uh, become a don at Cambridge or one of the other major universities. You opted instead for the Jewish agency and ultimately for full involvement in service to the state of Israel. And you are viewed by many as a man half English and more than half Israeli. Has there been any continuing connection between those two identities for you? Well, the idea that my destiny was linked with England never entered my head, even for five minutes, from the day that I was born up to this day. Uh, the idea that I was going to remain in England and not uh, associate myself with the destiny of the Jewish people would have been regarded in my family as the wildest heresy. In other words, throughout the whole period of my uh, education and my life in England, the concept of something temporary, something provisional was there the whole time and the major, the dominant uh, mission of my life uh, was uh, the Jewish people, its tribulations, its uh, pathos, its suffering, and its uh, hope of redemption, so that I wouldn't even give a 1% emphasis to anything that lay outside that. It's uh, rather strange, but it's m I think many Israelis who have lived in the West with their hearts not in the West, I think this is a very typical case, but the business of a half and half or a pool doesn't exist or that there was any process of torment or of decision, this never arose at all. Yet I find it rather paradoxical that there are some who view you as the legitimate inheritor of the Churchillian mantle, at least as regards high oratorical use of the English language. No, I think that the rhetorical tradition is fundamentally the Hebrew tradition. Anybody who in his childhood declaims the Hebrew prophets uh, reaches a certain uh, balance and cadence of style. Um, I don't believe that the English rhetorical tradition has an independent existence apart from the classical uh, Latin and Greek and above all the enormous uh, impress of the biblical heritage. In your speech to the Council on Foreign Relations, you are addressing basic issues concerning the politics of the Middle East and the hope for some ultimate and workable settlement. I don't mean to engage you in discourse on those matters today, but rather I would like to pursue with you your understanding of what kind of national life has shaped up within Israel now that it has been through a quarter century of existence. If you had to characterize the quality of the Israeli culture at this moment, what terms would you employ? It's a very contradictory picture because uh, on the surface it would seem that the predominant factors are those of diversity. Uh, diversity of origins, of backgrounds, of tongues, of cultural levels and of social experiences, so that one is tempted to ask how can any harmony or unity ever be created out of so many diverse elements. 
And yet when all this is taken into account, the overriding impression is one of cohesion, one of unity. Uh, you might ask, what is the that uh, joins together, for example, uh, a Jew from East Europe, a banker from uh, Holland, uh, an immigrant from New York, a student from Cambridge, a, uh, a Jewish peasant from Yemen or from uh, Morocco. What makes them one? The fact is that uh, whatever they have in common was strong enough to bring them to Israel and not to anywhere else. Uh, this indicates that there is a unity in their sense of uh, origin and their sense of destination, their experience the attitude of the external world towards them. And uh, that, I think, creates the ferment in uh, Israeli culture, tremendous diversity and overriding unity, and the tension between the two, sometimes diversity triumphing to the disadvantage of our social cohesion, and sometimes, especially in crisis and danger, uh, what uh, we suddenly become one family and present a uh, united front uh, to the world. Uh, I think that's the... Uh, fascination of the Israeli cultural experience. There are some Western Jews, Arthur Kessler for mm -hmm. one comes to mind, who um, complain that a certain historical pattern of Jewish character is inevitably put aside and uh, disappears in terms of its provenance under these new conditions. Kessler, seem, who for a while was a Zionist and lived in Israel in the Palestinian days, uh, takes the view that a special kind of sensitivity or sensibility has inevitably faded and he mourns that. I'm sure that you don't accept that as something worth mourning, but I wonder what your reaction is to those Western Jews who feel that their brand of Jewishness somehow isn't properly represented in Israeli culture. I don't know how Western a Jew Arthur Kessler is. The, the fact is if he found himself uncongenial to Israel, I don't know to what society he finds himself congenial. I think it's a, a, a superficial generalization to say that uh, sensitivity, uh, universalism, compassion, um, an idea of the tragic are peculiar to diaspora Jews and that they are not shared by Israeli Jews. There are circumstances in diaspora life which projected certain images of the Jewish character and certainly it was almost impossible for Jews in the world to be provincial. I don't believe that these elements are lacking entirely in Israel, although uh, there is a different context. It is possible, theoretically, in Israel to be provincial. It is possible for people to decide to live within the framework of their geography and to ignore the broader perspectives of their history and their culture. I really think that's the greatest danger that Israel faces, the idea that it's just a Middle Eastern state and that it should be cut off from all the universal and uh, worldwide elements which have gone to make up the uh, Jewish uh, heritage. The answer lies, I think, in recognizing the Jewish context of Israel. Israel without the Jewish people is a very small Levantine bridgehead with not much chance of developing a balance of security and survival. Israel plus the Jewish people takes on an aspect of universality and eternal people marching across unlimited expa expanses of, of space and time. So I think that any stress on Jewish solidarities will have an enlarging effect on the Israeli character. In general, I think it's much too early to generalize about Israeli culture because it's not just because it's a few decades old, that wouldn't matter, but it, it is still in formation. If it were a few decades old and yet crystallized, one could form a judgment. When it's a few decades old and new infusions are coming into it, one day from the Yemen and one day from uh, Morocco, one day from Eastern Europe, now from the Soviet Union, and sometimes from the West, it's hard to say what the final mixture is going to look like. 
When one thinks of Israeli historical experience, the central fact is, one, the ingathering of the exiles, and two, the continuing round or many rounds of conflict with the neighboring Arab states. Is Israel in any sense a garrison state? I invoke Harold Laswell's phrase, though I don't necessarily mean to carry it the full distance. Well, of course, there is a special obsession about security. Uh, the only people in the world which mourns the loss of six million of its kinsmen in the Holocaust, the only state in the world that has not had a day of peace in all the years of its existence, is bound to have an abnormal attitude to security simply because its experience is abnormal. But uh, to say that it's a garrison state, I think, uh, ignores the diversity of Israeli life. It could have been like that, but uh, there was a decision not to be Sparta, but to be Athens. I think the greatest achievement of Israeli society is that with all the obsession of security, Israelis have understood that they, ha they cannot be satisfied simply with protecting their survival. And Israel, which is not all the time building and constructing, creating uh, villages and towns and schools and universities, and uh, planting and reaping and sowing and creating new experiments in social organization, and throwing out uh, links with the world, um, such an Israel would not be Israel in the true sense of the word, because the essence of the Israeli adventure is growth. Perhaps some societies can exist in a static condition with everything behind them, uh, whatever the future holds, Israel today, I think, would wither and die unless it was in permanent growth. And therefore, um, what should impress people is the diversity of Israeli priorities, even with the security question hanging in the air, the amount of national preoccupation that there is with the ideological problems, social problems, uh, the creation of a society, the shape of society, I think that proves that uh, we're not altogether Sparta. I had a discussion once with the late Richard Crossman about whether we would become Prussia. I said he just has to come to Israel and look at all the anarchic turbulence and restlessness and insubordination of our democracy to find out how non-Prussian we are. I'm very struck by your statement that Israel is not Sparta but is Athens. Certainly Israeli political life has all the debate, all the excitement, perhaps even the disorder that Athens... Exactly. I think we might go a little too far into, uh, into Athenian turbulence. But I, I remember what a Greek historian said of Athens, which I think could be said of Israel. This people was born to have no rest itself and to give none to others. What are the prevailing domestic political issues that are currently in contest, quite apart from the whole set of issues relating to uh, whether the last war was properly fought and what international policy ought to be? What are the domestic issues over which the parties currently differ? There are the problems of taxation and of inflation, the degree of sacrifice which should be imposed upon our community, the question whether Israel has departed from the excessively or e tremendously egalitarian nature of its early pioneers, the growth of wealth, which brings about the growth of a social gap, the fact that for the first time one can say that there are rich and less rich and poor in a country where because of the lack of resources there were very few differential uh, criteria. But above all there is now the problem of the national leadership. Have we solved the problem? Uh, I believe we have not. Um, the lack of a feeling of solution indicated by a majority of one for the government in the Knesset uh, the knowledge that if there is a political uh, plan relating to peace with Jordan, there will have to be an election, so that there's still a feeling of transitoriness and of provisionality in the political climate. If I may turn in the personal direction again, uh, what are your reflections on temporary, 
temporary retirement from government. You've been actively involved in the Israeli government as an ambassador, as their permanent delegate to the United Nations, and of course most recently as their foreign minister. For the moment, I gather, you do not hold a government post. Well, thank you for the words temporarily and for the moment, because uh, that exactly reflects the position I've not abandoned the arena. It's very unusual in the parliamentary system that somebody should be a cabinet minister for 15 years and not have any breaks whatever. It's, uh, it's normal, and therefore my first response is uh, philosophical. I, I study the history of cabinet government, and I find it, I find it uh, normal. Um, I don't find normal the processes whereby it was brought about. I don't feel that there's a public mandate for my exclusion either in uh, Israel or in the Jewish world, but uh, while it lasts, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the freedom to say what I think and believe. I'm enjoying the lack of necessity to say, well, whatever I say is going to commit my other colleagues, is going to commit my government. Uh, do they want to be committed? That creates a certain uh, inhibition. I enjoy the privacy. I enjoy going where I like without 25 Secret Service officers. Uh, all of this I enjoy, and I enjoy the renewal of an intellectual experience through uh, writing, research, and teaching. As I understand it, you're at the moment resident in New York for a few months, is that Yes, true? I'm a professor of international relations at Columbia. They asked me to do that for a year. I agreed to do it until December for the first semester, and then to go and explore the political situation in Israel. And you undoubtedly have some major writing underway. What is that? I'm going to write uh, the story of my political um, activity, that is to say, my li life as a diplomat and as a minister. I think uh, this is a good time to do it. Uh, in the short time we have left, I'd like to turn to one other major matter. You are not only a man of distinguished background in terms of your governmental service and your involvement on the stage of international affairs, you were at the very beginning of your scholarly career a very accomplished young Arabist, and you are now a middle-aged Arabist and retain great interest in Arab culture, Arab language, Arab history. Let's talk, if we might, a bit, first about the Arabs of the Israeli state and then about patterns of change and conflict as you perceive them in the Arab world that surrounds Israel. The Arabs in Israel are not a problem <coughs> because they've decided to solve their problem by being in Israel, although they have the option of being Arabs in sovereign Arab countries, of which there are 21. By remaining in Israel, they say that they are prepared for the sake of their local habitat and for the sake of uh, perhaps a higher standard of living to renounce the joys of national independence, although they take pride in the national independence of uh, the Arabs elsewhere. There are many people who live outside their native uh, or national context, so long as they know the national context exists that is an abnormal and since 99.9 percent .9 of the Arabs are in sovereign states the fact that there are a few hundred thousand Arab citizens of Israel is not a uh, paradoxical and it doesn't create great tensions except the tensions projected from the relations between Israel and the Arabs outside as for the Arab world outside I think it's got to take a decision there have been four wars in each war Israel gets closer to the Arab capitals whatever successes the Arabs have had are relative within the context of a general defeat. Is there a movement for reviewing the whole concept of eternal war or are they prepared to see how much of their legitimate interests they can get by peace? I think there is now a conflict of ideology between those who want to go on with the doctrine of eternal conflict and those who are beginning to say well we might not have wanted Israel to exist but a great deal of life is taken up with reconciliation to things which we didn't want in the first place. 
well, the Arabs haven't done so badly with their 20 states and their massive resources. Let's see how we can get the most out of this situation. That is the conflict of view now in the Arab world, and I think the next few months and year will determine which wins. What is the locus of that conflict, whether in terms of an interaction between leading personalities or between leading Arab nations? First of all, between Arab countries, you can see these movements at work in Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt. You can't see any trace of them in Syria. And then within countries such as Egypt, I'm sure that both of these viewpoints are represented. I have the impression that uh, President Sadat himself is moving towards the concept of possible gradualist liquidation of conflict. Whether all Egyptians take that view, I don't know. Then you do not see the Arab powers <laughs> as necessarily committed to an eternal jihad, a holy war that will eventually... There, that, is, I, that idea is present in Arab thought and uh, psychology, and that's why we have to be very vigilant and not uh, be naive. I don't believe that that is the only idea that now exists in the Arab consciousness. I think that there is also the consciousness that wars... Uh, whatever they feel about their justification of being extraordinarily sterile, not only for them, not only for us, but also for them. And, if, uh, and they're not likely to have another war with such ideal conditions of surprise. They'll never have that again. Israel is much more likely to exaggerate on the side of vigilance than on the side of complacency. So I think there may be Arabs, and that there is evidence of this, who are saying that whatever can be achieved by war has been tried, let's try something else. Mr. Ibon, a last question. How do you, as one leading Israeli political figure, and as one who has strong roots in the West and in its culture, how do you view the continuing relationship between the Jews of Israel and the Jews of the rest of the world, of the diaspora, as you put it earlier? First of all, you've used the word continuing relationship, and that is correct. I think that it's a, a bond, it's a covenant created by common experience and common origins and a common sense of responsibility. It's going to continue. I think that in the free world there isn't any problem. Uh, Jews are able to combine many levels of devotion. After all, a man can be loyal to his family, his city, his state, his country, uh, and, and none of these conflict with each other. Uh, pluralism is inherent, I believe, in the concept of social loyalty in a free society today. So I think that Jews uh, abroad will see to it that Israel is kept strong. Uh, they will see that its cause is defended. They will give it such reinforcement as is essential for its survival. And they can do all of this while maintaining their roots in their own uh, nations and societies. Um, there will be a dramatic uh, development when I think uh, hundreds of thousands of Soviet Jews join us over the years. Tens of thousands already have. So I think that when you think of Israel, you must not think in terms of the three million today, but in terms of a continuing development of a special partnership between Israeli Jews and Jews abroad. Mr. Ivan, thank you very much for joining us during what is a busy day for you in Chicago. Thank you very much indeed.